Hi, it's me, Katie. And me, Adrienne. And you're listening to Kindled. A podcast where we dig into the science behind building relationships and environments that help kids unlock their full potential and become empowered learners. Together, we'll discover evidence-based tools and methods that will empower you to kindle the curiosity, motivation, and well-being of the young people in your life. Welcome to Kindled. So excited to see you today, Katie, because we're going to talk about my favorite, favorite topic ever. What's going on? How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm excited about our topic today too, but I have to tell you what happened this weekend. We were at the park. It was pretty late at night, like Saturday, and we had all of the kids. We were playing pickleball, the adults, and then all the kids were like running around like feral cats in our neighborhood. Um, <laughs> they were very safe. Don't worry. They're all cats. <laughs> they were over playing it. on the park. And my like, we just have this like big mass of kids running down, and my daughter, my six-year-old daughter, is holding something in her hands. And I'm like, oh no, what is this? And so she's like, I have a bird. She's like, I think I caught a chicken. And there are some neighbors that have chickens around like around the park. So I'm like, oh my gosh, probably someone's little chicken got out of a something and got to the park and she found it. And sure enough, it was this like very tiny chicken though. Like we could not believe how small this chicken was. Just the it was probably a day old. But it was running around. Like it wasn't like it hadn't like just come out of the egg. It was like running around, very active, very spunky, very friendly. And so all the kids were holding it. And I was like texting all of the people that I know in the area that have chickens. Um, we were taking pictures of it. And then I'm like, okay, well, we don't have any pets. We actually have like a pretty strict no pets rule. But oh. I know my daughter was just like in love with this chicken. And so our guides all have chickens. So people like brought me a heat lamp and chicken food and all these things oh, and, wow. and we, like, put it in a bucket. And we were like, well, okay. Our, we were trying to find, you know, I could not handle having a chicken at my house. Like we're not pet people really. And it's you just already said that. <laughs> so you must really not be pet people. <laughs> it's a big thing in our family. Um, how not pet people we are. I love animals, but we just don't have pets in our house. We have too many other small pooping things right now. Maybe Got it. They are older. We can um, talk about bringing other things into our house. But, um, anyways, so we're thinking about how are we going to keep this chicken alive? It's like cheeping all night long. I'm like checking on it. I feel like I have a newborn again. And then um, I'm like Googling. I'm like, what kind of chicken is this? Because maybe if we know what kind of chicken it is, we can find whose chicken it is. Um, and then I will mm. not have to keep can see my true motivations here. Um, and so I'm Googling all these pictures and turns out it's not a chicken. It's a quail. Oh yeah. It's like a baby abandoned quail. And that's why it was so tiny. And it, you can oh. even see it has like a little, like little tiny poof on its head for like when it's a little flag thing grows in. <laughs> anyway, so we brought it to a bird rescue place yesterday. Wow. It's actually illegal to keep quail turns out, um, which was great when my daughter was crying about giving the bird away against illegal to have this bird in our house. So, um, but here's what I learned from this. We were like so quickly attached to this thing. We loved it so much, right? Our little attachment brains are just like, Oh, we got to take care of this thing. And, and, and especially my little girls were just like, so in love, in love with this quail. They named it pickle. Cause we found it when we were playing pickleball and on the way home from the bird rescue place, they were, they were just sobbing. They were so Aww. sad. I'm like, oh my gosh, we have not even had this thing for 12 hours. And yet we are like having all of these feelings. But I was thinking about this. I could have very easily said like, okay, it's just a bird. You haven't like even had the bird for more than 12 hours. Like just get over it essentially. Cause my ears did not like the crying. Right. But, um, I didn't do that. I was able to just sit in that and enjoy the fact that my girls have really empathetic, deeply caring hearts. And in order to get that empathy that helps us really care about others, which eventually leads to us being able to, with our prefrontal cortex, I, cortexes, um, <laughs> being able to regulate our behavior because regulation or like inhibition of our behaviors is the product of being able to feel two things at one time, right? So like, I really right. want that toy. I love my brother, so I won't hit him. But until you can really feel those two things, those two big feelings, you can't inhibit your behavior. And so 
like knowing that my girls are little and they don't have this ability yet, they're just completely, they feel one thing at a time. Right. And those feelings are big and strong, but it's actually in their best interest to let them feel those things and to not try to inhibit their crying because I don't like the sound of it. Right. Or sugarcoat it or act like, you know, the, the bird just disappeared or like to be truthful and honest, I think it's really important too. Yeah. To let them feel that. Yeah. And to point out, like we're having this big feelings because you have a deeply caring, empathetic oh. heart and that's a huge strength. Right. Um, instead of like, please just stop your behavior that I don't love. Right. And that, that actually allowing that, allowing space for that really helps them develop the, that part of their brain that's able to feel right. Because if we can't feel anything, then we definitely can't feel two things. Right. right? So we have to, to sit in our big feelings. And sometimes as adults, it's just really hard to do that. Um, because, the big feelings are loud and they're uncomfortable for us and they're inconvenient for our schedules and all of these things. But just know that when you allow a child to have their big feelings and you are supportive and with them, that is doing a ton for their brain development. And it's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. And Katie, as I was thinking about this, you have all this knowledge, right? From reading books, watching YouTube videos, watching all the things, going through parent coaching training, you've digested so much of this information so you can access it much quicker. But what about someone that this is brand new to them? Is it going to be as easy for them to access all of this information that you just downloaded to be able to show up for their kids when this happens? Definitely not. And there's like different phases of learning about this and then being able to actually put it into action, right? Because you're, you're going to know things a lot more than you can actually do them for a long time. And I think it's just important that we're all really compassionate towards ourselves and give ourselves a lot of patience. And probably like the next time my kids cry, I'll be like, stop, get over <laughs> it. You know, like we just had a window of success. It doesn't mean that this is like how I parent all the time. So yeah, just a lot of patience with yourself and, and learning as the path to being able to do better. Mm. I think a lot of us feel a lot of frustration with how we parent or how we teach or how we guide. And we get caught in these shame cycles of like, Oh, I really lost my temper. I'm a yeller. Like we'll identify as that when those things aren't really super helpful, we just need to ask ourselves the question like, man, why was that the best I was able to do in that situation? And what will help me do better next time in the same way that you would want to ask that of a child right? That's struggling. Why was that the best that they were able to produce in that moment with whatever resources they had on hand internally um, or externally? So just being compassionate to ourselves and to our kids. And there's so much information out there. That's why today we are going to dive into the autonomic nervous system. This is our interpretation of the autonomic nervous system based on all the things that we've read and this knowledge that we've gained over the years. And we are in this place where we've been able to practice it for a very long time. And so if you are brand new and learning about these kinds of things, like Katie said, just take some self-compassion and and don't try to drink from a fire hose. Just take little pieces. And we're going to try to be really practical as well and give you very specific things that you can do to start building on this knowledge so that you can practice it in your parenting and your teaching in the classroom, um, on the field, in coaching, in any situation where you're working with kids. So what's really cool is an autonomic nervous system and all of this information about it is pretty brand new, especially when we apply it to teaching and apply it to parenting. I personally am so thankful for all the people and the experts out there doing this work. We might throw out different names like Dr. Stephen Porges, Dr. Deb Dana with the polyvagal theory and Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. They have lots of very, very useful frameworks and Peter Levine has really good frameworks around all this stuff. But basically all this information is coming from neuroscience, interpersonal neurobiology, psychology, and sociology. And it's all, it's like this big puzzle and the pieces just keep getting put together and we're realizing, oh my goodness, this is why so many people are dysregulated is because we weren't giving the, given these tools or the opportunity to develop our nervous systems in healthy ways. So basically the nervous system is a communication system throughout the entire body. We have what's called neuroception. It's assessing the world through this lens of internal safety or safety. This is not 
usually conscious, it's subconscious. So there's all these subconscious thoughts and memories in the background, basically assessing and figuring out, okay, am I safe or not safe? Even if you are actually safe, there might be perceived danger, which we're going to get into. And this nervous system of ours is constantly translating cues and we're constantly looking for signals from the environment. This is going to get a little sciencey and that we're going to say some words and you're going to be like, oh, that's a big word. And so I'm actually going to play the role of like big word alert ometer. And so if, if we, if we like say anything that I feel like, oh, and a, like a person that's new to this wouldn't recognize, I'm going to like stop us mid sentence and say, Hey, let's define that. Perfect. Katie, can you tell us a little more what the nervous system consists of? Um, okay. So parts of the nervous system. Sure. So your brain, obviously, I think that's the biggest piece that most people would point to, but it's also your spinal cord and all of the nerves that run throughout all of your body and your sensory organs, all of the sensory organs, like your skin, your eyes, your tongue, all of these things that bring information in from the world into your brain. That's all part of your nervous system. Together, these organs are responsible for the control of the body and communication among its parts. So you can kind of think of it as just like a, your body's communication system. So the main part of this nervous system besides your brain is a thing called your vagal nerve. You have 10 cranial nerves and they like innervate your eyes and your nose and all of these different things. But there's this really important nerve that comes down through your spinal cord and connects all of your internal organs and then circles back up and innervates your face and your vocal folds and your talking. So it's called your vagus nerve. Vagus comes from the Latin wanderers. You can think of this nerve just wandering all the way throughout your body, connecting everything. So you can basically think of the vagus nerve as kind of like the head conductor of how you calm your body down. That's interesting science and all, but why do we need to know about this vagus nerve and the nervous system in order to better interact with kids? Like, how is it connected? Well, if we don't have a good understanding, we don't have an awareness of what's happening in our own bodies, in our nervous systems, or really this understanding helps us become more aware. You might already be very hyper aware of what, how you feel in your body, where you feel in your body, but then diving into the three different parts of this autonomic nervous system can really help you not only regulate your own self, but then co-regulate with the kids that you are in care of. And really what happens too is if we don't have an understanding of this, then we become victims of our reactivity. Have you ever felt that way before where you just fly off yes. the handle and you're like, yeah. what in the world? That is not me. That is not how I want to show up. Where did that come from? Right? Mm -hmm. What's happening when we hit this level of reactivity is a trigger. We probably had, this is a big <laughs> uh, buzzword, you know, in psychology and all over the internet, but to be triggered, what that means is that our nervous system is perceiving a signal of threat in our environment. It means that our body and brain are working together to figure out how to get us to physical and or emotional safety as soon as possible, even if it's not convenient <laughs> with what is going on. That's interesting because you know, I mean, that's a good summary statement. I think like your nervous system is the job of the nervous system is to intake information from the outside world and internalize that into safe or not safe, Correct. right? Because if you are not safe, you are, you need to react to that. You need to respond to your environment. And so this is like your body's alarm system for whether or not um, something needs to be done to keep you safe and to help you survive. It's like a very basic survival element of your body. Yes. And why this is so important that we as adults understand this when we're interacting with kids is because a lot of us adults did not get this as kids, as I stated before. So co-regulation means that our nervous systems are working together to become calm. Correct. Correct. There's this energy. That's why I struggle, honestly, with Zoom and Zoom meetings is because my computer is not giving me <laughs> any energy. I mean, I'm trying to get your energy through the computer, Katie, um, but yeah. it's sometimes yeah. challenging for me. That's interesting. So if we didn't get this, <laughs> if we didn't get this, uh, the way we're wired is whenever we are born, we are wired to find regulation and, and attach to a caregiver, right? And so if we're not given this as children and as we develop into adults, then our brains and our bodies will translate safe cues as actually being dangerous. So this is why it's really important to understand this so that we can help our kids 
live um, in ways where they can develop this really strong vagal tone. You're going to ask me about that. We're going to break that down a little bit and have full functioning nervous systems. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say is that not feeling safe in our bodies when we're little and not having access to co-regulation partners that help us get to that safety causes a sort of like imprint or memory in our bodies that like there, we're going to have safety issues, right? We're going to be a little bit more like tense around. Is, am I getting that? Yeah. That so it's like saying? a baby crying should not alert us to make uh-huh. us feel unsafe. But for a lot of people that can trigger you to feel very unsafe in your body or a child yelling yeah. at in your face or hitting you or kicking you. What they're displaying is that their nervous systems are really, really underdeveloped and their impulse control is very underdeveloped. So we should be able to stay in a regulated state to co-regulate them out of that. But if we didn't get that as kids, then it's way harder. Does that make sense? Tell me if this is right. A caregiver that is providing for our co-regulation needs strengthens our nervous system in a way and helps us develop into an adult who can stay regulated through like whatever chaos is going on outside. But if we didn't have that, our adult nervous systems can actually could in a way be seen as underdeveloped. And then we would not be available to actually act as a co-regulation partner for a child that has a developing nervous system. Right. right? And this is very interconnected to the belief systems that are created from a child and having this like strong sense of self or this strong sense of their perception actually being reality or not. This is all developed through this autonomic nervous system as a child, as they become fully developed. What can happen with this as well is that it can lead to the feeling to to need to have control or exert power over children because we are needing to try to regulate ourselves as adults because we didn't get this as kids. (laughs) Definitely my lived experience. Like I think, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I know many adults that can like, that feel like, oh yeah, I can stay calm through any amount, any tantrum, any disrespect, any disobedience. Like, I don't know a lot of people like that. Right. Because this information is very, very new. (laughs) And in our culture, that was not what we were taught. We didn't know. So that's what you said at the very beginning. Once we know better, we can do better. And now we're knowing better. And this is once you start doing this, it totally makes sense. And no longer do I view my kids as having bad behavior or good behavior. I'm looking at their nervous system and their sense of safety. And it's incredible how much more they listen to me and make better choices because that's all that they've needed all along is this connection in their nervous system. And I think it's good to pause and say like the medical professionals and doctors that were advising our parents and grandparents did not have access to this information, right? So there's no possible way that a mom in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s could have been trying to be a co-regulation partner for nervous systems, right? So we don't need to look back on, we can observe how we were raised and be like, oh yeah, that's out of alignment with current modern day science. But we really don't want to like look back on that and think like, oh, or like what I did, if you're, if you're listening to this as a grandparent or someone who's finished raising their kids to, to get caught in that shame cycle, like the science was simply not available. And now, um, it, it is becoming more and more well known that this is kind of what's going on internally and wait, just, just better ways that we can kind of come together and provide kids and adults what their nervous systems need to really, um, have access to your higher self or your best thinking, your prefrontal cortex, um, and really show up in a way that you want to show up. I think that we all want to show up. No one wants to be like the yellow, right? (laughs) Well, sometimes you may find comfort in that though, if you have always been a yeller. So that's something to note as well as, Mm -hmm. yeah, you may not up here think, oh, I don't want to be a yeller, but then when it feels good because it's a release in our nervous systems. So something we can really do is reflect. So I'd like to pause right now and just reflect. I'm going to ask this question to Katie, but also think about your answer while you're listening or watching this. So can you recall a time in your family when your child or say when you were teaching a student was melting down and you became irritated, angry, or irate? And like, how did that play out? 
Yeah, totally. Um, it didn't play out well. And I can't just pick one because there are thousands of opportunities for me to describe <laughs> situations like that. Raising four small children and trying to work at the same time. Um, I feel like my energy to like show up as my best self has been very low. And a lot of times, and I don't, I mean, this is true of many moms. It's like, you're trying to parent this young human and you're also pregnant at the same time or nursing or something. There's, there's lots of drains. You're not sleeping. Like there's lots of drains on you as a mom or as a teacher, you have 30 little nervous systems running around all needing different things. And it's very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so it's very understandable that we would lose it sometimes. Okay. So this, I probably had like a three-year-old, a one-year-old and I was pregnant and my three-year-old was, I had, as soon as you, if any, anyone else out there that has two kids, you'll know that as soon as you have your second kid, your, your oldest kid is now an adult. <laughs> like you need him to do all those sorts of things. And like, I'd never lived through the, this, the course of development in a child before. Cause you can't like as your oldest and I'm the youngest child. So I'd never actually watched anyone grow up or like go through this developmental sequence. So I had all these expectations of my oldest, who's like barely three, um, you know, to totally take care of himself and be independent because I just needed him to be that way because I was tired. We're getting very real here on Kindle today. Um, so he was losing it and he was getting super violent. And that is very, we'll say triggering for me. Like here I am pregnant with a one-year-old and he's like kicking, biting, screaming, hitting, like all this stuff. Like it's not safe for my pregnant body to like be in the mix with him. Right. And so I literally just had to take my one-year-old and my self and go in a different room and like close the door. And like, I talked, I tried to talk to him calmly through the door. So he wasn't alone, but like, it literally was not safe. He was just totally losing it. And I did not know what to do. And I felt terrible about how I was handling it. I just didn't, I was just at a loss. I just did not know. I did not have the skills or knowledge to handle that then, or like the capacity to get calm. I was so mad. And I just like feel this like rage in my body that like wanted, like literally separating myself from the child was the healthiest thing that we could have done in that situation. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what it looks like. A really awesome exercise is to revisit that and think about, okay, now with all the knowledge you have and understanding how to access your higher self and understanding, okay, I know what part of the nervous system was in charge replay that and what could you have done? This is really, really powerful because we're going to talk a little bit more about this is it's going to help us be prepared for when these things happen again. So I, I'm sure I can't remember specifically this, but I'm sure the the impetus for his frustration was probably caused by me having an expectation of him that was too high as a three-year-old with a little brother and a pregnant, tired mom. Like there's not a lot of resources that he had um, access to, to control himself or to, you know, deal with a frustration in a nonviolent way. Like that's just not something a three-year-old can really manage. And in hindsight, I wish I had just been empathetic in the moment and said something like, Oh, that's really frustrating when mom can't be with you. Or when you can't, when you have to share, like, it's so frustrating. And I would have just like listened empathetically and not made his, his upset wrong. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's totally valid and normal for a three-year-old to feel super frustrated when they don't get their way or when their mom can't be with them or whatever it was that was frustrating us that day. Um, it was my inability to stay connected to him and to be empathetic in that moment. Um, I think that probably led me to like punish him in some way for feeling that to say like, you need to go to your room until you can be calm. Or like, I probably like snapped at him. Like, no, you can't touch, the, touch your brother that way. Or you can't, you know, like I probably, I probably conveyed to him in some way that he is not good right. enough in this moment to be connected and to be with me. And that sent him even further down the rabbit hole into his sympathetic nervous system, which we'll get to. Um, and if I could have stayed as a co-regulation buddy in that moment, even if I was feeling tired or like, I definitely have more research resources than he okay. did. Right. As the adult in that situation. So I feel like I could have been more empathetic if I had been more familiar with those like developmental norms and how important it was for 
their little systems to, to remain connected, even if we have like, um, a rupture or some sort of, um, thing that, that happens that causes some disconnection. Um, the most powerful thing I'm hearing you say is you're replaying the narrative and you're figuring out the why behind the behavior. Not, you're not just looking at the surface mm-hmm. of the behavior, the biting, the screaming, the hitting, or I don't know if you said he bit, but <laughs> all the things that in the way he was reacting and you are able to now understand, oh, there's something going on beneath the surface. So then that then can help your narrative and the story you're telling yourself in the moment, not feel like you are in danger, but instead you can stay in safety, which is really huge. It's interesting that in that moment that my nervous system perceived a very dangerous, threatening, triggering situation instead of a three-year-old who needed a little help. Right. And that was because I had not yet done the work in my nervous system to be able to like be aware of my states and to know like, Oh, I'm feeling this way. That means that I should probably like go in the pantry and eat some chocolate chips for 30 seconds. And take some deep breaths and get, get my resources, my chocolate chip resources, we'll say, <laughs> just kidding, um, to, to increase to the level to where I can, I can stay at that and be that, like to be that co-regulation partner. That and at the beginning of the journey, it can feel really, really hard. But as you learn these things first and it becomes head knowledge and then slowly you just apply it little steps at a time, it just becomes a natural way of being because this is really how our nervous systems were wired and created. So it's really awesome. So let's dive in mm-hmm. to the three tiers of the autonomic nervous system. I liked I'm a very visual person, so I kind of visualize it as almost like a sandwich is on the top. We have uh, top and bottom. We have parasympathetic. That is the rest and digest. And then the middle, we have the sympathetic. That is the activate mode. So we have... I'm going to say some sciencey words. <laughs> we have, okay. So we can also think of this as like a ladder. So on the top part of the ladder, we have the ventral vagal system. Ventral then is going to be our top side. And that is going to be where we can access this calm. And a phrase I really like, and this makes it much easier to understand is social engagement system. So when we're in our ventral vagal, we can be social, we can collaborate, we can really be able to understand each other, and you're engaging socially. Okay, so let me summarize what I just heard you say. Ventral, or when you're in your ventral nerve. Ventral state. It's a part of your, it's a vent, ventral state, so I'm just like, this is my yes. learning. Um, we're talking about your, your vagus nerve. There are different branches of your vagus nerve. Correct. So when you're in the ventral part of your vagal nerve, when that part is active, you'll be highly socially engaging. You'll be able to manage yourself. You'll be connected to your prefrontal cortex. You'll be able to think, solve problems, feel curious, feel like you want to go explore. Um, are these... Yes. And this is when we can be fully present and connected. This is when we can access love, safety, groundedness. We can have good eye contact, a soft, gentle tone of voice. And as you mentioned before, is how it, this nerve goes out to even like our face. So our nonverbal communication, our face communicates so much. So when we're in ventral vagal state, we can really have a loving, warm look on our face and our eyes are bright and our kids want to connect with us. This is our state of inner safety when we have nonverbal cues, cooperation, as I mentioned, and this ventral state is grown and strengthened through consistent, reliable, and dependable relationships, which we talk about secure attachment. And we can really live in this mindset of relationship comes first, not compliance or obedience or power control, but my relationship with my child, my spouse, with my friend comes first. So this makes sense to me that I'm just like, I just, it's helping me to like summarize what you're saying. So essentially if the, if the nervous system is our body's mechanism by which it keeps us safe, it's not going to let us do all of these things if we're being chased by a mountain lion or if we need to be like in full, like shut down, like play dead mode because we're being attacked, right? right? So it's only when these other 
like safety cues have been satiated that we are able to engage in this way. Correct. Accurate. Very accurate. Okay, cool. So then now we're going to move and talk about the sympathetic, which is mobilization or fight or flight. So Katie, can you break that down for us? We're talking about the ventral vagal branch. And now we're going to move like one step back. And you're going to want to think about this kind of middle of the ladder. We have this kind of ladder analogy going middle of the ladder being your autonomic nervous system. So you're going to respond to something you're going to mobilize. And this might look like a fight. Like there's a bear. I'm going to fight the bear or there's a bear. I'm going to run away. Right. So we have this fight or flight kind of, um, So this is where you'll see like your blood pressure increase, your body temperature is going to rise in kids. This is going to look like they're bouncing off the walls. Like they might be fighting and they might be running away, but it can also just be like, like a nervous kind of excited energy. And the funniest application of this is going back to this very dysregulated three-year-old and dysregulated mom story. When I would do something or talk to my son when he was being disobedient, he would laugh at me Mm. and I would get so mad. But laughing is just another way to like try to get back into your ventral, you're in your sympathetic and you're trying to get back into your, into your ventral mode. And so he doesn't know how to cope with my negative, scary like presentation. And so he just starts laughing because his nervous system is just trying to respond and it's immature. So that's a mechanism that kids use to deal with the world when it's too scary or too overwhelming. And that is really triggering for adults because we interpret that as disrespect or like they don't care. Another mechanism too Um, is, that's actually a really good thing when your teenager does that because that's their nervous system releasing this energy. But mm-hmm. if we have a narrative or a story telling us that's disrespectful, then we try to stop that. But, or even if you may make those noises like, Ugh, you know, that's actually really, really good. <laughs> Your nervous system is trying to regulate itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we don't want to try to stop that energy, right? We just want to be like, we just want to accept that that's where we're at. And we want to go back to kind of, um, in past, I think in past episodes, we've talked about seeing a child as like a plant and all how they're manifesting is just information. So all of that laughing when it's inappropriate or, um, sighing or any like facial stuff, like they're just processing, they're in their sympathetic nervous system and they're not wrong to be there and they're not disrespectful because they're there. Right. So we have to kind of pull apart these labels, um, and just view those things as information and then ask the question, okay, like we're in this, they're in that, in that stage, their sympathetic nervous system. Um, what do I need to do to help them come back? Right. Um, or what do I need to do to just like support them while they're there? The right answer isn't always like just fix it as soon as possible. We want to stretch our nervous systems. And the more time we spend kind of going back and forth and learning how to process in these different, different phases, um, that stretches and strengthens our nervous system and actually makes us better right better at keeping ourselves regulated which is then strengthening the kids nervous systems as well because theirs is very underdeveloped Mm -hmm. and something in my coaching program we talk about a lot is dip your toe into their state so dip your toe into the sympathetic Mm -hmm. but don't drown don't allow yourself to be completely pulled in or allow their i'm gonna use the word amygdala (laughs) what is amygdala katie the amygdala is your part of your brain that that like processes fear and like alarm alert So we don't want to allow their amygdala to hijack your amygdala. So dip your toe in, but keep one foot up on that rung, on that top rung of the ventral state. And then that way you can support their energy because you want that energy to flow through their bodies. You don't want to just stop it. Like we talked about with your three-year-old, we want to allow him to get that out, but then we do need to get him to climb up the ladder with us by staying regulated ourselves. And you, you do kind of have to come down the ladder with them a little yes. bit because if someone's coming at you with a ton of energy, they're trying to tell you like, there is a big problem that I have here. And it's like, so for example, if I said something to Adrian and Adrian didn't hear me, I would say it louder. Right. And if she still didn't hear me. I would continue to escalate that message. And so sometimes when we stay super calm, mm. the child can interpret that as you're not getting my message. I need to slam a door. I need to kick something. I need to escalate this because you're not hearing me how big of a problem this is. And so if we can wow. remain in that ventral state and stay regulated, but come down to be to, to match their tone or match their volume to just say, wow, this is a really 
big problem for you. I hear you. You are super frustrated with this and get some energy, but not lose where you actually are internally. Then they can feel like, Oh, my mom gets me. My teacher understands that there's a problem and that, that needs attention. Right. And so then that actually leads them to be able to get calmer and to come back into ventral because they've been heard. Right. And they've, they've reached out for help essentially saying, Hey, I have a problem and I need a co-regulation partner. And you've come alongside them and said like, wow, yeah, I'm going to validate you in that problem and like be with you here. And then I'm going to move you past this with my more mature nervous system. We're going to get back to ventral together. So we can look at this problem and reflect on it in a way that's less emotional or less, um, negative, but we can't solve the problem when we're in those feelings. So the first thing is just get, come alongside and then slowly move them forward. I have been immersed in this information for years and years. I teach, I coach and Katie, you just helped me literally every t- when my kids become extremely dysregulated, I stay so calm and it frustrates the heck out of them. I never even thought of, I mean, I know the phrase, right? Dip your toe in, but don't drown. You want to match them. It wasn't until I heard you just say that I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm not matching their energy. I'm allowing their energy to get out, but I'm staying so calm. And I have this really calm tone of voice that my 13 year old just last night, will you stop talking like that? <laughs> Why are you so right, but I have to be careful though, too, because if I match his, then I, I get sucked in, man. Totally. I do. Can bring you in. Yeah. Totally. I feel like it's sucked into the totally. vortex. <laughs> So now let's talk about the other side of the parasympathetic, which is the dorsal vagal definition. Um, ventral means forward or front, right? So you can think of like when you're in social engagement, you're moving forwards towards things. Dorsal means back. So you're retreating, um, you're closing doors, you're immobilizing. So that's a good And you can think of a dorsal fin on like a, you know, a dolphin on the back, on their back. Yeah, they can help. So this is whenever you become shut down or you go into the freeze response or uh, faint response. And this is because your system is shutting down. (laughs) It's like a robot and your blood pressure actually decreases. So enough oxygen can get to the brain to keep you stable. And the person then can tune other voices out, may not respond to invitations to engage. You actually can have low muscle tone, low energy. This is where like depression lives is down into this dorsal state. So when the body is connected to inner safety, the dorsal vagus nerve supports our body to gently move back and forth between high energy. So the dorsal vagus is still good. Like it helps us move back and forth if we have inner safety. But if we don't have inner safety, if we're under a ton of stress, and if we've lived in chronic stress for very long time, then the dorsal vagal literally just shuts down the whole system. It's kind of like a opossum where they play dead. And this is so interesting because sometimes, um, when you are really like, when you've lost it with a kid and they're just staring at you deer in the headlights and you're like, stop doing the thing you're doing. Like they literally are so afraid and they're in this nervous system state, this dorsal state where their body is literally frozen and they can't, like they're not in control. They're not being disobedient. They literally can't move their body to do the thing that you want them to do. And so you sometimes can, it's easy to read that like continued disobedience as continued disrespect, which then just triggers you even more and sends them further into dorsal. So can you kind of start to see like how seeing kids and behavior this way helps you know what you actually need to do to get the results you want, right? Because we're just, we just end up fighting ourselves um, by not understanding this. And that's kind of been the biggest take home for me is like, wow, just looking at kids through this lens helps me, helps my interactions, my behavior, my words, like whatever I choose to do actually be more effective. It's not just like, oh, great. I'm not a yeller anymore. I can stay calm. That's not the goal. The goal is whatever your goal is in real life. Like, do we need to do the homework? Do we need to get out the door? Do we need to like all of those real life things, seeing the the child this way and yourself this way and being understanding and compassionate of both nervous systems, um, can kind of help redefine 
how we move, how we do life together. It's like so huge if we, if we can just step back and see it this way. And it helps us make sense of why we have behaved or why we resort to yelling or why we resort to, it totally makes sense, right? It does make sense. And that is the biggest thing. Like imagine like something traumatic happens in your life and you go to your friend and you're like, this is happening or you're telling them the problem. All you want them to do is to say like, that stinks. That's super understandable that you would feel that way, right? Our, what we're trying, all humans are seeking understanding. They want to be understood. They're like, this stuff is going on inside. And I would like to take this outside and see, you know, like we're very social creatures. So um, when we co-regulate together, when we, we seek understanding, that is very calming to us. Even if it doesn't solve the problem, it doesn't make you less sad. It actually changes the way that you experience that trauma or shock, whatever it is you're going through, because, um, you have someone to like witness that you're going through that you're, you're, there's like a witness of that pain or that trauma. And that in and of itself helps you move through that. Um, and so when we, even if we, if a kid is overreacting, I hate that word, but they are reacting. And then we have judged it as an overreaction. That's what overreacting means. They're seeking understanding and we're not giving it to them. We're saying, no, your feelings are not justified. And we do this. I, I think it's understandable that we do this because we all have values that we are living by and then sharing with our kids, like perseverance or hard work or honesty, like Um, so when someone lies, for example, like we want to take that core value and say like, no, there's no room here for understanding because a lie is a lie is a lie. And all that child really needs is for someone to say like, lying was wrong, but I understand why you Mm -hmm. lied. You're trying to solve a problem. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you felt scared. You felt backed into a corner. I bet that was really hard for you and you did the wrong thing, right? But I'm here and our relationship is tolerant of that. And that creates enough safety in the child to know that next time I feel backed into a corner like that and that I need to lie, actually there's this safe space like where I can be honest and maintain this relationship and move back into safety. And you've just demonstrated a different loop for them than they thought than they had imagined essentially, which caused their bad behavior. Um, so just, I guess my point is empathy and expressing understanding isn't justifying a a behavior that shouldn't be tolerated or accepted. There still needs to be boundaries and those boundaries are connected to your values and circling back to dorsal vagal. So what this can look like in a child is not listening, or we may label them as being lazy or, and this is whenever a child just cannot connect with you. And so Katie just beautifully illustrated how we can help a child whenever they're in dorsal vagal. The biggest thing is having empathy, being aware and having this acceptance of where they are and releasing fear. We go into these fear and shame cycles that can really prevent us from showing up. And we want to really seek connection and co-regulation with healthy, strong (laughs) nervous systems. We kind of borrow their ventral energy. So to get to ventral though, you do have to move. So from dorsal, so think of it again as a ladder. So we have dorsal on the bottom that's shut down. You have to move through this mobilization, through this energy of the sympathetic to get to the higher state, which is ventral. So this could be look like lashing out or tears or crying. So if a child is super shut down and then they start crying, that's a good thing. That means they're moving into a higher state of self. Mm -hmm. And that's tricky because you can sometimes read dorsal as calm because it doesn't look like that, you know, so that can be. So how can you discern that though? What's, what's a good way of discerning that? Yeah. I mean, I think that when you're in ventral, there's a calmness that is also positive. It's not like, um, an apathy, right? Right. You're not, it's not apathetic. You care about things. You're engaged. You're just like settled. But with this dorsal, it's more like, it's definitely negative and it's like, I don't know, like the best, it's like a rock that doesn't move. Or Eeyore. You know, it's just like heavy. You know, just kind of like Eeyore, just this low state of energy and eyes. So when my 
oldest was in a traditional environment. He was just getting in trouble day after day after day, losing recess, not being able to get all this energy that he had inside of his body out. And how we came to the conclusion that he needed to leave that environment was he no longer could look at us in the eyes. And this kid is very extroverted. He is able to have really strong eye contact. And he was just averting. He would not, he couldn't even like seek this safety. And because of knowing all of these things, I was like, we got to get him out. Because the longer you stay in dorsal, the harder it is to get out of dorsal. And like I said, it can be connected to to depression, to lots of not really good things. You don't want to stay in dorsal vagal. And just a statistic real quick right now in the United States, like one in four, one in five kids are struggling with anxiety and depression. And that is too many kids, but that's, that this is where they are. And it's understandable that they're there when you look at the world we've created for them. But it it has become normalized though, to treat kids in this way and for them Mm -hmm. to be quiet because quiet then equals obedience or compliance. And so, but we're not realizing Mm -hmm. under this lens of internal safety, what we're doing to their nervous systems. But now, Hey, we're learning about this. And so now we can do better, right? Yes. So let's talk about some tools that we can use to strengthen these nervous systems and like move us up and down the ladder. Yes. Is that good? Perfect. Okay. So something that's interesting is that your, your vagus nerve is attached to all of your organs and you don't control like your stomach or your spleen, like, or your liver, like, right. right. Those things are, are involuntary, but there are a few of your organs that you do have some influence over. And one of them is your Mm. diaphragm. And so when you choose to take really slow breaths, this is why breathing and like mindfulness is so important and um, like very popular right now as a method for calming down is because I can consciously control my breathing. And then that sends a sensory input into my vagus nerve that actually runs back up to my brain that says like, Hey, everything's okay. Like we're like doing calm breathing right now. And I think that means everything's fine. Another thing you can do since your body temperature increases when you're in sympathetic, um, you can use ice or put your hands in cold water, put cold water on your face to calm your, to, to take your body temperature down. And that can be another sensory input that communicates. And and this is why people take cold showers or why they go into, there's like cold therapies that you can do. Basically what that is doing is creating this vagal tone, which means that we have a strength, we're strengthening that vagus nerve so that it can easily go from sympathetic to parasympathetic. So that's why those things exist. Or you could do like cold shower, which we live in Arizona. So in the summertime, I don't know about you, but I don't even have cold water that comes out of the faucet. It's pretty ridiculous. But this time of year, I I do have some cold water, but you could do cold for like 30 seconds and then go to warm. And all that's doing is triggering the vagus nerve. Um, humming your, your vagus nerve innervates your vocal folds. And Adrian, I think you want to demonstrate. Yes, so you do lots of different things. So the vagus nerve kind of attaches to the back of the vocal cords. So singing, humming, making those noises. So if I start to feel myself moving into this sympathetic state, like I walk in a room and my kids are fighting and they're screaming and the sound is a lot. I have a very small auditory bucket. I can only handle so much. I will just start which is ridiculous, but at least it calms my nervous system down. And honestly, it might match their state, right? Because it's loud and it's energetic and that can kind of help them calm down as well. So lots of noises in the back of the throat. And you can even take your finger and rub it on your lips and that can access Mm. your parasympathetic. It's so crazy. Okay. So the next thing is speaking slowly, right? We're talking about our vocal folds and our mouth that's innervated. So Adrian and I are terrible examples of this on this podcast because we talk a thousand miles a minute. But if you just slow down how fast you're talking, that can be another sensory input that, that you can get into that parasympathetic, come back into ventral. Nature is another one. And even just looking at pictures of nature, green. like if you have, like I have this, this is like my calm thing that I look at. Yeah. Things that are green. Um, can help. And then we haven't talked a ton about this, but positive thoughts, um, have, there's this whole connection between your nervous system and the narrative that you are running in your brain and this connection between your thoughts and your feelings and how that shows up in your body, which we'll go into further in a different episode, I think, but just really keeping, um, 
an eye on how your thoughts are showing up and influencing how you're feeling in your body. Another one is exercising, not like crazy go like crazy go nuts exercising, but just a, a walk, something active, getting your body moving. Um, and then Adrian, do you want to talk about cultivating a healthy gut? Yeah. So diet is really huge and probiotics and cause our gut is basically our second brain. So we really mm-hmm. got to look at what we're putting inside our bodies and what we're putting in our kids' bodies. Our nervous system cannot become regulated if there's all this junk being thrown at it too. It's all, I mean, it's all connected, right? That's why we talk about just the basic needs of our bodies, sleep, exercise, food, all these basic needs are extremely important when we talk about the autonomic nervous system. Yeah. So I think the main take home here is that your nervous system needs to become your friend instead of like something that controls your life and the life of your children. And when you have, you can kind of think of this framework as the manual to how to operate your nervous system. And when you do that, you can just approach life in a much more like welcoming way. Like none of these, none of the different states are your enemy. It's just an awareness of what causes them and when you're there. And if you want to be there, right. Sometimes it's fine to just curl in the curl up in the fetal position and cry a bunch. Like that's fine, but we don't want to stay there. Right. Because that maybe is not a very happy life, but you're going to be there. Your kids are going to be there. And I think the key is not hating those times, just accepting them and being like, yeah, that's where we're at right now. In fact, um, I read an article a long time ago. I can try to find it. Um, but it talked about how a helpful way to see all of this, like co-regulation stuff was as if you were riding a train through a tunnel with a child. And instead of thinking like, we got to stop this train, we got to get out of this tunnel. It's like, nope, we're just going to be together and we're going to get through the tunnel and then, you know, we'll move on with our lives. But it's like, if you never go through the tunnel then you're always afraid of the tunnel, you're afraid of sadness, you're afraid of big feelings. And then when they come, that's really triggering for you. Right. But if you can just feel those feelings and stay together and connected through those feelings, then the nervous system learns that these big feelings, even if they're negative feelings are not unsafe. And that can help us experience. I mean, life is going to happen, right? There's going to be trauma. There's going to be sad things that happen. It's not about not experiencing those things and just being happy all the time. It's about staying together and using those things to grow, to, to come closer to each other as families, as classrooms, as microschools, whatever your community is using those to bond. And that teaches the brain that these things, these traumas aren't as dangerous or as unsafe as we maybe thought they were because we experienced them and we experienced them in a supportive, connective way. I love asking my six-year-old what, I mean, this is something I've taught him. So of course I love it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I'll ask him what are emotions like? And he'll say, they're like waves. They come and they go. And what's important is we want to feel into these waves, even when they're uncomfortable and they don't feel good, feel into them. Because what happens is the feeling creates cellular safety inch by inch, and we just grow and develop, and then we can handle things um, much better. And, you know, we cannot live in this venture state all day long. It's not possible. We're human. We're constantly looking at our environment and just reading these cues all day long and our environment's going to be changing. So there's no possible way we can just stay calm all day long, but it's really important. Like Katie said, for us to just recognize it and sit in it and remember that we can strengthen our nervous systems um, so that we have more and more access to this ventral and this calm state, which then honestly leads to strong states of mental health. Like Katie mentioned of how many kids are suffering from anxiety and depression. I don't know what the statistic for adults is, but I'm sure it's just as much, you know, and this is the key. I'm telling you, understanding a nervous system and being able to apply these things and building your vagal tone is really the key to feeling good in our bodies and feeling good in our relationships. Drop the mic. If this was really overwhelming, like, don't worry. This is just like the first kind of time we're going to talk through this, but we have future episodes where we're going to talk to some more experts about this and really develop these ideas.
Like I said at the very beginning, there are so many incredible people doing this work and getting it out to people. And so we reference a lot of people's work in this episode is Deborah and Wilson, which we're going to be talking to soon. She has a book called The Polyvagal Path to Joyful Learning, Dr. Deb Dana, Stephen Porges, Dr. Mona Delahook, uh, Dr. Dan Siegel, and Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. So all these people have been getting this work, translating it, and getting out to the masses so that we really can reach these better mental states of health. And we'll make sure that if we reference something that we put it in the show notes so you can, can follow Absolutely. up and get the information. Okay. Ready to move on to the question from one of our listeners. Okay. So here's the question. How do you combat kids getting really distracted and unruly at the end of the year? So this person said, my kids are less motivated and more cranky than usual. This is coming from Cherokee. So true. Um, and I'm sure if you're a classroom teacher or if you're a microschool guide or anything, you're feeling this like end of year energy right now that like is just going to explode. Um, and I think this like is so closely tied into what we talked about today. The kids are telling you where they're at in their nervous systems. And if you can see like, oh, there's nothing wrong or there's nothing really to fix here necessarily. Um, it's just where we're at. And it's very understandable that, you know, they've been working really hard. They've been sitting in those desks or not sitting in their desks, depending on where they go to school. Um, but there's been a lot of like buildup to their progress and their growth. And it's just kind of all kind of coming to a head and they're probably not going to know how to react to that. Right. So if they're feeling overwhelmed in their nervous systems by all of that stuff that's going on, um, and, and it's not just school, right? Like baseball's wrapping up, all their sports things are like everything's there might have fun summer plans that they're looking forward to. There's a lot of stuff to process in their bodies. And it's understandable that they might be trying to cope with that in a variety of ways. So um, distractedness or like not engaging, that is a form of avoidance, right? It's like, well, that feels overwhelming to me to just either, maybe they're at the end of the rope and they've been pushing super mm -hmm. hard to get things done. And they're just kind of feeling like, man, I just run a big race, you know, and it's fine if it's, it's understandable if they're feeling like, and I can't really look at that work anymore. Like I need, I feel this way a lot in my work where it's like, I'll do a big sprint. It's like, if I open that document, I think I might puke because I'm just like, <laughs> I might puke. so obsessed with that like work. And now it's like, I need to put it to the side. I need to go outside. I need a change of pace. And so that is all just really understandable. And maybe the way to deal with that is to just understand it and to make room for it. Like let the kids go yes. outside. Like they have been working really hard. Um, help them channel that energy into a way that is acceptable in whatever situation you're in. What would you say, Adrian? Get curious. I always, and I sing this a lot, which is helping trigger my vagus nerve, but curious, curious, like, Get curious. <laughs> so if I start to and curious about your own nervous system and your own thoughts and your own beliefs that are tied to, do you have shoulds? Like, oh, the kids should be doing this right now. You know, being curious about your own inner state and then being curious, like Katie basically said, is being curious about the kids' states. And she illustrated this so well with the three-year-old um, and just uh, replaying that and understanding where he was at that time. And just, yeah, trying to figure out like, what's happening for these kids and then allowing it to just be, I think that is really important too. And not just try to fix things all the time because that causes us to get stuck and sympathetic. Yeah. Another way to help, um, kids, if this is like a sympathetic nervous system reaction, get to get back into their parasympathetic or ventral state is to give them some control over it. And to just come in instead of saying like, Hey, we need to get all the stuff done. Or like, you know, we, you guys need to pay attention. Just say, huh. I'm noticing that this is happening. What's going on for everyone? And giving them a moment to like air these things. Like, well, I just like, I'm so excited. Or like, I'm really nervous because I have this coming up. Like give space to that um, and then put the problem back to them. It's like, I know, okay, those are all really valid reasons to feel these ways. What are we going to do? Because we still have three weeks of school and, you know, like we still need to make this progress. This is still our goal. This is still a learning community. We still need to use our time productively. Like what's that going to look like and how can we all problem solve that together instead of like coming in with, uh, with your own sympathetic nervous system that you have to control and make them be a certain thing. 
really give the problem back to them and then hand over some control because that control is actually going to help calm them down. Yeah. Another mic drop. (laughs) That was awesome. And if you look at that question, Cherokee, it's super interesting and I'm sure a very timely thing for lots of people. So next up, we are going to announce our next Spark Squad nomination. This week's Spark Squad nominee is Jamie Dennett. Jamie runs a micro school with a highly neurodivergent population. She treats every student as a human being first. She works collaboratively with parents to make sure she's doing everything she can to best support them and to teach the rest of her group about diverse needs and inclusion. She's eager to learn and get new ideas for addressing student concerns and her students thrive because she meets them where they are at and implements strategies as they are meant to be implemented with empathy at the core. There's no ego in what she does, which is rare to find. So thank you, Jamie Dennett, for all the work that you are doing with your kiddos. It is seen and appreciated and welcome to the Spark Squad. So that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Kindled wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, rate us, or share your favorite episode on social media and tag us at Learn. For more Kindled content, head on over to Prenda.com slash Kindled and subscribe to the Kindled newsletter. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to email us your questions, concerns, anything you want coaching with. You saw how we just did a coaching question. Send your questions in. Also send us your Spark Squad nominations and all of that can just come to podcast at prenda.com. Thanks for listening and remember to keep kindling.